Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome back Melissa Walker of The States Project, formerly known as Future Now. Melissa was my guest on the very first episode of the New Faces of Democracy podcast, when deep in COVID lockdown, she schooled us on why we should be focusing on winning state races versus throwing money at big, expensive federal seats. On this episode, Melissa's back to talk about why state elections matter now more than ever, how tiny margins can create huge policy and power shifts, and why this year's elections in Virginia are of vital importance. Melissa doesn't sugarcoat the fight that lies ahead, but she will give you the inspiration and information you need to be a fierce and focused warrior. For more information about the States Project and how to join or start a giving circle, check out their website at statesproject.org. Melissa Walker, welcome back to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you, Nancy. It's so nice to be here. So it's been a while. We last spoke in 2020 in the middle of the COVID lockdown. So that's three years now. How's life? Oh, gosh. Very different from that moment, which I remember with stark clarity. But things have gotten better since then. The work has gotten better, too. So that's a good thing. Good. That makes me happy to hear. In our last podcast discussion, you were educating us on why we need to care about state elections. Many of us were clueless about that then, me included. And this was really a revolutionary idea for many of us at the time who hadn't given much thought to state legislatures. And, you know, we all thought it all depended on who our president was or who our congressman was. So I think that now many listeners are well-versed in state races and why state legislatures matter. But for anyone who needs a refresher, I thought we could just start with a quick primer. Absolutely. I mean, it is wild how much state legislatures get attention in the news these days, which is a good thing for bringing a lot of what they do to light. But I also think that people aren't fully connecting the dots on how powerful they really are. So State legislatures control almost every issue that we think about domestically and that we care about, from education funding to environmental policy to health care to civil rights to abortion, as we know, especially post-Dobbs decision. This is all being decided in state capitals. And they also happen to control huge facets of our democracy. They control voting rights, gerrymandering. The drawing of the district lines that decide who goes to Congress is done by state legislatures. And they also, by the way, are drawing their own lines to send themselves back to the state legislature. So it's an incredibly potent power center on all of those kitchen table issues that we talk about. It also just has a huge lever on federal power because Again, with the drawing of the district lines that decide who goes to Congress, that's in a state legislature's hands. And state legislatures decide who can vote and when and how and when to purge the rules and when to change voting laws. And they can either expand voting access or contract it. And we see that in state after state. 
And that impacts not just local elections, but also the presidency, for example. We see these states being won by a few thousand votes in presidential elections. And so much of that has to do with the voting laws that state legislatures are putting out. So it really is this incredible power center that still is hugely overlooked by most folks who are casually engaging in politics. But it is absolutely where the right wing built their power. And, you know, we have these 50 mini congresses in our country and we ignore them at our peril. And when we can elect majorities into those mini capitals, mini congresses that are working to improve lives, we can change the foundations of our country and the types of laws that are spreading from state to state to federal. So it really is this ultimate power center that deserves more attention. One thing you just said, one small point that you just made, which I had never really thought about before, is I always thought that redistricting just applied to congressional seats. I didn't realize that it's also about their very own seats. So how many states are Republican majority among their state legislatures and their governor? And I guess my follow-up question is, is it too late in some of these states to pull back power if it's so entrenched? It's never too late for any state, certainly. I do think that there are, you know, at the States Project, we focus on a set of target states. And those are states where we see a path to a power shift. That power shift doesn't always mean flipping an entire majority. Sometimes it can mean defending against a right-wing supermajority or breaking a right-wing supermajority or defending a vulnerable Democratic majority that's working on improving lives that is in peril, or doing something even a little more in the weeds than that, things like breaking a budget threshold, getting to a certain number of seats that you need to control something like the budget. We look into smaller power shifts too, because those kinds of interventions can have huge impact on policy and outcomes for people's lives. There's an example that's a little in the weeds, but in Nebraska in 2022, we were there not to try to shift the majority, but to try to preserve 17 seats for lawmakers who are focused on improving lives. And we were able to preserve those seats by one. And it was a handful of votes that decided that. But what that 17th seat made possible was that Democrats were able to filibuster during the spring. And you may remember that there were two big filibusters that happened in Nebraska. One was against an anti-trans bill and one was against an abortion ban. And it brought some national attention to the Nebraska legislature for a little while, those filibusters. Now, they don't have the votes to stop those things from going through. But because of that filibuster, the abortion ban, for example, which was proposed originally at a six-week ban, became a 12-week ban. Now, that's a small power intervention. It is still a tragedy that there is an abortion ban. But that six-week window, because of that one seat, won by a few hundred votes, matters. And we had a couple of giving circles involved in Nebraska last year. And we say to them, like, this is your work. This is where we're focused. It's an incredibly strategic and sometimes as in the weeds as that sort of thing focus. And then it can be as big as winning new majorities and new trifectas, as you mentioned, where the governor's mansion and both state chambers are in one party's hands. In Michigan, they're in Democratic hands because of a shift in the Michigan House and the Michigan Senate, both in 2022, 
both of those chambers were won by fewer than 400 votes. And because those chambers were won, we are watching Michigan pass incredible policies, including gun safety legislation, getting rid of their trigger abortion ban from 1931, ending those so-called right to work laws and letting people, folks unionize again, and really moving forward on so many things. And we're watching Minnesota do the same thing because they have a new trifecta there. Again, that one was won by a flip in the state Senate that we helped make happen by 161 votes. So we are working on these tiny margins and they absolutely matter for huge power and policy shifts. We watched Minnesota get free lunches for all the kids in Minnesota. They also were the first state to codify the right to abortion in their state laws after the Dobbs decision because of this new majority. They've done incredible things. And those types of wins are happening because people focused on state legislatures and went in to do this work. It's just an incredible place to look when you're looking for a place where you in a living room with 10 to 15 friends can have an impact. Right. And what you said is a great reminder of the many subtleties involved, the nuances. It's not just about who has more votes, because then it can feel bleak in some states. But like you said, it's the incremental power shifts. That's a really interesting point that I often think doesn't get reported on or people aren't as interested in because it's not like big news, but it has can have a big impact. How would you say the state of the state is different now than in 2020? What are the successes? Well, you mentioned some. What are the challenges? And I think I know some of what you might say along those lines. 2020 was honestly like a very tough year. It was a tough year because when we went into our states to work, you know, we were working under COVID. So we lost one of our biggest tactics, which is candidates knocking on doors. (laughs) That was a huge piece. And Despite that, we were able to hold a lot of ground in 2020. But I will tell you, this is a story that I like to tell because it really is personal for me, but I think it's also a universal feeling. I started doing this work in December of 2016. So we all know what might have inspired me. But I started doing this work then. And in 2018, we were able to flip a bunch of seats in Virginia and help it get really close. And then in 2019, we ended up flipping Virginia into a new trifecta that was able to pass incredible policies. And in 2018, of course, there were incredible wins, including breaking supermajority in North Carolina, flipping four state house seats in Arizona for the closest balance of power since 1966, flipping the Maine state Senate to give Maine a new majority that was able to you know, expand abortion access and pass automatic voter registration and lower the cost of prescription drugs and raise teacher pay. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this works. This is so great. We're winning, we're winning, we're winning. And 2020 felt like hitting a brick wall. The States Project was in a bunch of states. We did not achieve our electoral goals. We held ground. And I remember that we had a meeting the day after the election and I was crying in the meeting because I felt like you know we hadn't achieved our goals. I felt really upset and terrible. And I knew that the giving circles had worked so hard because we work with these giving circles to raise our electoral dollars. And I remember our political director called me after the meeting, our political director, Andrew Gunwald, called me after the meeting and he said, I saw that you were upset. And I said, yeah, I'm upset. We lost. We lost. And he said, we didn't lose. We held ground. And I said, that's not the same thing as winning. Like, we need to shift these majorities. We need these good policies to pass. We need to change people's lives. And he said, well, are you going to quit now? And I said, no. 
And he said, good, because you're kind of new to this. And you may not know yet that you fight and you lose and you fight and you lose and you fight and you lose and you fight and you win. But there's really only one consistent part to this. And I was like, the fight. And he was like, that's right. And I carry that story in my back pocket because I know that we won't always have hugely winning years. And I think that in the beginning, I got excited by that. And now I get excited because I am in the fight, because we are in a moment in history where we could lose our democracy. And I have two little girls and I want them to see me in the arena. I want them to see me with like sweat on my back and dirt on my face working on this problem as tangibly as I can. And I firmly believe that the foundational and tangible way to work on this problem is by working on state legislatures. It is a place to build absolutely fundamental power in this country. And it is a place where we can change policies and improve people's lives and expand democracy from the ground, from the bottom up and not the top down. I don't believe it's going to come from the top down. I think about this a lot, even when federal things happen, state legislatures implement those policies. State legislatures decide where to spend all that COVID relief money. Alabama spent it on private prisons, right? These are state legislatures that are making these decisions on the ground. And, you know, things like the Affordable Care Act, there are still 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid because they don't feel like it. They have majorities that do not want to do it. And that is about who's in power in your state capital. And we still live in a country where most people don't know who goes to their state capital for them. So it is a place to shine a light and let people know, like, this is where we should be looking. But it's also a place to find a whole lot of hope because those majorities that I just talked about, again, were won by a few hundred votes. In 2022, we were involved in 59 races that were decided by fewer than 1,000 votes. And those races were the races that determined new majorities in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Minnesota. And in terms of holding ground, I do remember our political team coming back and saying, now do you see why holding ground was really a win? And I said, yes, because we won these majorities by one seat in most cases. So if we hadn't held all the ground in 2020, if we'd lost anything, we would not have these new majorities. So I see the long-term power build now. I see being in it for the fight. And I encourage people to look for that type of steadiness as opposed to quick wins and shiny objects and emotional reactions to what's happening politically. We all saw the sort of knee-jerk giving people will do to races that are more symbolic than anything else. And if they could have, I mean, I'm not putting myself about this at all. I'm certainly being guilty of some of this too. But if you can just like think rationally for a moment and not emotionally and put your money to races that cost a lot less to run, like how much money do these state races generally need? So the sentence that I like to say is it is often cheaper to change the balance of power in an entire state chamber than it is to win a single competitive congressional seat because congressional races cost tens of millions of dollars and state legislative races just don't. They are still small. They are still local. And when we're working in a state, we're targeting the exact seats that we need to shift power and just making sure that they run full campaigns with evidence-based tactics. That's what we're working on. And so it's a very targeted thing and it can 
can move the needle with much smaller amounts of money. And that's why I say to giving circles who are forming this room could change the outcome of what happened. I mean, as we talked about, you know, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania was a place where in 2022, we needed to flip 12 house seats to win a new majority. And we got all 12 in a year when no one expected that. And the 12th one, Missy Serrato's district, was won by 63 votes. And so when a giving circle comes to me and says, well, you've got some giving circles that are raising, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and some, but mine only raised a few thousand. Did it make a difference? I say 63 votes. We won this thing by 63 votes. So every piece of that basket weave was incredibly important. And I really believe that. And I think, you know, we do not have to be witnesses to what is happening in our democracy. And when we organize and we focus strategically this way, that is our piece. That's what we can do. And I know I'm talking a lot, but I get really excited about this because I think that people are looking for a way to have a strategic impact. And I really am here to say, this is it. State legislatures are it. They have control over all those kitchen table issues that we talked about, that you're worried about, that you care about from all those things, education funding, environmental policy, healthcare, civil rights. And they have a control lever on federal power too. So I always say, if you care about Congress, you should care about state legislatures because they draw the district lines that decide who goes to Congress. If you care about the Supreme Court, you should care about state legislatures because the Supreme Court doesn't write laws. They rule on laws, many of which are coming out of state legislatures. It was a Mississippi law that took down Roe. And if that one hadn't done it, there were 16 other states that passed laws right after Kavanaugh was confirmed, banning abortion explicitly to travel up to the Supreme Court to challenge Roe. That was state capitals doing that. That had nothing to do with Washington, D.C. And if you care about the presidency, you should care about state legislatures because, again, they decide who can vote and when and how. And these are things that are echoing throughout all the levels of government in our country. And there is a concentrated power in state legislatures. So you talked about a little bit about, you know, how states are in the news a lot. State legislatures are more in the news now than they used to be. And I did read something in the New York Times a few months ago saying that it was an article about how things are getting more and more contentious in the states, more so than at any time in recent memory. It's basically like states either getting redder or bluer and this sort of bulldozing of the opposition that takes place. It's sort of like this purple myth is really just like dark red meeting dark blue and clashing in the middle. Does this reflect what you're seeing from your vantage point? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I do think that that is a very potent national narrative, of course, because it makes everything a sports game or a fight. And it's very dramatic. I will say, you know, the States Project does policy work in states as well. So when our policy side is entering a state and working with people on passing bills, there is often bipartisanship happening there. And there are issues that really do span the aisle a bit. They are not the ones that are necessarily garnering headlines, but in states, especially where we're holding an incredibly slim majority, and I include Michigan and Minnesota in that, not every vote is along party lines. They are mostly, to be honest. There are things that really can cross over a little bit. And certainly there are opportunities in states that do have right-wing majorities for some 
policies to move that can help improve people's lives. And those might need to be driven by people in the minority. The truth is that it really does matter who holds the gavel. And this is something I think about a lot too. Often when people think about politics, they think about one person like, oh, I love this one candidate. This one candidate is so amazing. I'm going to help elect this one candidate. I'm going to work on this one campaign. And that is noble. And also the calculation has to be, is that person going to have power? Are we electing a majority for that person to work in? Or are they going to be an observer in their chamber? So we think about this a lot in terms of power shifts that are happening because we don't work in deep red districts or deep blue districts. But of course, there are some amazing candidates in those districts who we hope to empower. Not the deep red one, the deep blue one. (laughs) Right, right, yes. (laughs) Who we hope to empower. And one of the things that I think is important to note is when we were able to shift the majorities in Michigan, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania, we saw numbers like those majorities went from 0% people of color to 30-some percent people of color. And those majorities went from like 20% women to like 60% women and 0% LGBTQ plus folks to 11% LGBTQ plus folks in one chamber that I remember. So we're changing who's at the table and who's bringing policy issues forward. And that can really shift the policy that's passing. And I think something that's really important to remember is that we're not just improving lives for the people who voted for this new majority. It improves lives for everyone in the state. And there is a virtuous cycle to that type of policy work, because when we can elect a new majority that focuses on improving lives, it is then easier to reelect those people who passed those good bills and potentially deepen a majority that is focused on those types of issues. And people will have to come to the table if they want to be elected in a state where folks are paying attention to what their state capital is doing. And that's a virtuous cycle that we're seeing begin to play out in some of these states where we just saw the power shift and that we hope to see more of and bring to more states. So again, it's about a lot of subtleties and not necessarily about big headlines that can, can often send us into it like a doom cycle. Yeah. And I think sometimes those headlines are really big distractions. I think that in a lot of ways, we have to figure out like where our significant and tangible fight is. You know, there's a lot of like, oh my gosh, this one thing that's passing. And meanwhile, I'm always like, I'm very interested in the states that start yelling about something that's in the spotlight. I'm very interested in what else is in that bill? What else got passed right after that bill? What else is moving? Because it's a distraction in a lot of ways. And there's so many shiny objects in politics that people are, you know, it's human nature to pay attention to those shiny objects. But for folks who really want to think about this in a more holistic and strategic way, it's really important to say, huh, I wonder why there's all that shouting about that shiny object and where else I might look. When I was preparing for this podcast, I went back and listened to our last one. And it was really interesting because, as you mentioned earlier, you talked a lot back then about attacks on reproductive rights. And I mean, listening to it now felt like, I mean, you sounded sort of eerily prescient because I think a lot of us still had our heads in the sand, like, well, they'll never get rid of Roe. You know, Roe is going to survive. I don't know. I just couldn't really bring myself to believe otherwise. But now with abortion banned in so many states, you really saw the writing on the wall. 
So that said, without having a crystal ball, where do you see the right wing targeting now? And what should we be hyper-focused on in upcoming legislative sessions? I will say I see a lot of movement around defunding of public education and privatizing education. And that is a potent issue for sure. It's one that's, you know, certainly come up a lot in Virginia where we're focused this year for 2023. The truth is that the reason probably why it was somewhat prescient on the abortion issue is that state legislatures have been controlling abortion the whole time. You know, even before the Dobbs decision, there were states that were operating within a hair's breadth of federal law with one clinic open. So where you which state you lived in did decide whether you had access to abortion or not, even before Dobbs. And so I think that that's important just to say, because while the Dobbs decision drew so much attention and spotlight to it, it really was the case before that states were holding all the cards. And that is true of so many issues that may have not like lit up in people's lives yet, but really are incredibly important. So in thinking about, you know, the issues that are coming up, we're also thinking a lot about voting rights. You know, we're watching Virginia is a state where we are just two seats away from losing the majority in the state Senate. So we're there to protect the state Senate and flipping two seats would create in the state house would create a tie there. Getting three would flip the chamber. So we're working on doing that. And of course, part of that is to put up a wall in front of Governor Youngkin, who is a Republican with a really, really strong right-wing agenda and a presidential hope in his mind. And if he is able to get a red trifecta, which he is just two seats away from getting in the state Senate, he will be able to ban abortion, which he's already said is in the plans, and roll back voting rights and roll back some of the climate advances that Virginia has made. You know, Virginia was a state that was so exciting to watch in 2020 because they had a trifecta, a blue trifecta, and they were able to ban the death penalty. They took a Confederate holiday and made it a state holiday election day. They made election day a state holiday so that everybody could take off and vote that day. I mean, these are the type of game-changing things that state legislatures can do for all of our democracies. So to watch Virginia slide back to the right wing would be a travesty. And we're working very hard to make sure that we can hold the state Senate, shift power in the state house and block any of those right wing policies and pass some good stuff through the legislature. Yeah, well, you just preempted my entire next question, which was what's going on in Virginia for people who may not be totally focused on it. Their elections are in odd years, so they do get a lot of attention. But this year's is particularly important. I didn't realize they were just two seats away from a Republican trifecta. And as you say, that is monumental. The consequences there are absolutely huge for people who live in the state. First of all, tell me your strategy. Are you backing specific candidates? Is that it, basically? And how can people get involved in Virginia? The States Project, we are working with the state caucuses in Virginia, so the State House Caucus and the State Senate Caucus. That's the entity in the state that's exclusively focused on the legislature. And so we're working with them. They are local partners on the ground to target competitive districts 
and make sure that they're running, you know, an evidence-based research-backed campaign. And that means layering tactics. So our view on this is, you know, of course, candidates need a field team. They need some mailers. They need digital ads. They need a little TV. It's not three-dimensional chess. It's Connect Four to win these races. But we do add in a couple of strategic layers when we go in. And in Virginia, we're working on a local press project. So we've helped the caucus hire staff that will help candidates get local press placement. And that can be in everything from like a small regional newspaper to a community paper that helps raise name recognition for those candidates in those districts. And it's an incredible boost in that regard. And name recognition really is the name of the game for state legislative races. Another thing that we're doing is when candidates spend dollars on ads, of course, that's a pretty expensive investment for campaigns. And we are working to make sure that all those ads get ad tested among people in the district so that we know that it's the right message for the district and that that ad money isn't just going to a generic message that someone outside of the state feels like is good. We want to make sure that those ads get ad tested. And the third thing, and the really the kind of signature program that the state's projects is bringing to Virginia is the door knocking challenge. So candidates in the districts that we've identified as most competitive are entered in the door knocking challenge, and they are working to personally knock doors. <laughs> and every month, the candidates report their door knocking numbers to the caucus who reports them to us, and we give additional campaign contributions to the candidates who have knocked on the most doors. So the top four door knockers each month get additional campaign contributions. And then there's a pool of dollars available to any candidate who hits a target number of doors. So in July, that was 900 doors. So candidates who knocked on that many doors. And I mean the candidate themselves. I'm not talking about a field team or volunteers. I'm really talking about the candidate themselves because Again, we're not in deep red districts, not in deep blue districts, but in those tipping point districts. And the candidate is the persuasion knock. A field team is great for get out the vote, but to have a candidate knock on your door and talk to you about the cracks in your sidewalk, how the local school is doing, what the weather's been like this past couple of weeks, that's a neighbor, that's a person you know, and that can cut through any negative mailers, national noise, and really help people connect one-on-one on the issues they care most about. So the candidate knocking on doors is a huge tactic. It is non-scalable, but you can use it in state legislative races very effectively. And our goal, because these candidates do need to raise dollars for their campaigns, and we understand that, but our goal is to get them off the phone, dialing for dollars, and onto the doors talking to their voters. Because again, these races are going to be won by a few hundred votes. And so winning on the margins and candidate door knocking go together hand in hand. And you know we're very hopeful about that program. And we've seen it in action in Pennsylvania in 2022. We ran a door knocking challenge. We found that our candidates knocked five times as many doors as candidates who were not involved in the challenge. And again, we flipped the Pennsylvania House by 63 votes. So we know that that was thousands more doors knocked and voter contact is huge. So that is something we're working on. And to your second question, sorry, that was a long answer about what we're working on in Virginia, but to your second question about people getting involved, I keep mentioning giving circles, and I feel like I've assumed that everyone knows what I mean. But giving circles at the States Project are people who organize their friends, their families, their networks to choose a target state from our list of states, raise dollars to help fund our electoral work in those states. So when people come together and organize dollars this way, that's the emotional part of the political giving. Like, let's do it together. Let's do it with my sister and my neighbor and my coworker. 
And the strategic part is baked in because if you're raising dollars for Virginia, you are supporting the door knocking program, ad testing, staff for these campaigns, you know, making sure that they have what they need in the target districts that we need to shift power. So that is what Giving Circles do. They raise our electoral dollars and 100% of the amount raised by Giving Circles goes out the door to the state that they choose. And we're hard at work in our 20, some of our 2024 states already as well. So lots to focus on this year, but Virginia is the next one. And 2024, do you just want to briefly touch on your plans right now for that? The states that we're working in for 2024, we will be back to defend the new majorities in Michigan and Minnesota and Pennsylvania. We'll also be working to try to flip the state Senate in Pennsylvania. We were able to flip the House in 2022. We'll be working on protecting that, of course, and then flip the Senate as well. We will also be in Arizona, where we are tantalizing one seat away in each chamber from a power shift. So we'll be back in Arizona to work on that for 2024. And we'll be in New Hampshire, where in the state house, which is has a wild number of representatives, we saw in 2022, there were seven races that were decided by fewer than 10 votes. And we'll be back to work on flipping the New Hampshire house in 2024. We will be adding a couple of states soon and probably be adding a few more as it gets closer to 2024. But those are the states where we we already know we're committed and on the ground. Okay. So you talked about giving circles. If someone doesn't feel ready or doesn't want to, you know, just wants to lob in some money, how does that work? There's lots of ways to do that. And certainly joining a giving circle, I think is one of the most rewarding ways to do that because part of our goal with giving circles is that there's a transparent political giving experience, which is sometimes hard to come by. And many of our giving circles organize their own Zooms. And of course we host Zooms where you get to meet some of the candidates and talk to people on the ground. And that piece I think is enjoyable and also strategic because the more people know about state legislatures, the more people know about state legislatures. And they can spread the word. So joining a giving circle is a wonderful idea. If you are not up for organizing and leading one yourself, we have some Virginia giving circles listed on our state under our Virginia page. And there are other, if you're interested in another state, you can certainly contact us. We are the GC team at statesproject.org. GC team at statesproject.org is the giving circles team. And you can just go to statesproject.org and hit contact us and we'll be in touch because we would love to get folks involved. So it's kind of remarkable listening to you talk because you have the same incredible unflagging enthusiasm and energy now that you did three years ago. It's really remarkable. How do you stay so energized? I mean, it's a long fight. Like you said, it's about the fight, but you don't seem to get that dispirited. You know, I will say I get tired sometimes, but I don't get dispirited. And honestly, it's because I see this work from the inside every single day. And I watch our Slack channel light up with, oh my gosh, this policy just got through. Oh my gosh, they're passing this. This is amazing. Like this is because of the electoral work we did. It's just, there's so much validation for the work being done. And I I work really hard to try to make sure Giving Circle leaders feel that too, because they're a huge part of it. But I think that those victories along the way, which really impact millions of lives, feel tangible to me and to the rest of our team. I believe in this work with all my heart. I run a giving circle, as you know, and that has been the most rewarding and impactful work I have ever done. And, you know, I've got skin in the game. I donate, you know, as much as I can to my giving circle each year. And I also think there's a real peace of mind that comes with finding a focus 
and watching it work and keeping in that strategic groove. It has calmed me. I do not panic in these moments when the Trump Biden polls show up again. And I feel like we're in this weird deja vu. And, you know, that is not something that I can impact. But you know what I can do? I can organize a bunch of people to raise enough money to shift power in a state legislature and change foundationally what's happening in policy on this country. And it feels really strong to be able to do that. And I think sometimes when you haven't found a focus, you can start being here, there, and everywhere and emotional giving. And over the next 15 months, there will be so much emotional giving. And for me, I found my lane. I go as deep as I can on it. And it is steady, rewarding work. Well, I can't think of a better way to wrap up. Thank you so much. It's so great to talk to you again. You always get me like every time I hear you speak, I am totally pumped up and ready to rejoin the fight. So I really appreciate it. I know many other people do too. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.